Shri Guru Parampara ki jai, Daji Gopal ki jai, Gaur Premanandi. Good evening. We got a book on it. Give a little um, explanation of the song we just sang. So, as uh, we were speaking last night about the uh, efficacy of kirtan and how it is central to the um, yoga of bhakti, it's an anga or a limb of, of bhakti, um, and it's so nice and easy and popular that in today's world, of course, it is overflown into the uh, yoga discipline and other spiritual disciplines as well, that it is not classically a limb of, just like Astanga Yoga has its yamas and niyamas, which would be like the, the limbs of the body of of uh, Astanga Yoga. Kirtan, you may know, it is not one of them, but Bhakti Yoga, this is one of its limbs. And, as I say, it's obviously overflown into the Astanga Yoga community as well. It's probably worth mentioning that the leading exponents of Astanga Yoga in the Western world, each of whom have, in, have passed away, Ayengar uh, and Patabi Joyce, were both disciples of a, um, a guru, Krishnanamacharya, who was and had adopted a mixture of Astanga Yoga and Bhakti Yoga as his path. <clears throat> With some emphasis on bhakti, which didn't come out as 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 much through those uh, students and exponents of his, but um, <clears throat> here we're in the center of the bhakti yoga <laughs> idea. So um, tonight um, we sang a nice song, and this is a song from West Bengal. West Bengal is where the the um, the founder of the type of kirtan, in particular, that uh, that that we do, as I was mentioning the other night, at the time, that was about 500-plus years ago, there was kind of a revolution of sorts in the Indian uh, religious uh, community, wherein the common people felt that the there was more immediacy uh, between themselves and the Godhead than was being taught by the Orthodox school of Dvaita and uh, and the uh, Brahmin class and so forth, uh, which had kind of monopoly on the religious uh, community. And it was thought that first you had to take birth as a Brahmin, and then in that life you had to take birth as a t- take sannyas and live in the Himalayas and so forth to have direct communication with the Absolute. And so this kirtan was kind of an answer, or nam seva, service to the name of God, and starts sprouting up everywhere. Kabir, for example, Tukaram in Maharashtra, uh, or uh, the Sikh uh, founder, what is his name? Um, Guru Nanak also advocated Nam, uh, Satnam, and so forth. So there are many, many um, kind of answers that were saying the same thing, which was that by the Logos, which is what we find, for example, in the Bible, also the Word was one with you know, and in the different traditions, religious traditions of the world, 
all of them, in one way or another, hold this idea that there's a sacredness and power in the uh, sound representation of the Absolute, which could be different sounds. Hmm? Um, but um, um, this idea kind of started to really come to the surface, and amongst the um, uncoordinated, spontaneous revolution, so to speak, as I'm, as I'm referring to it, which is happening in different parts of the subcontinent of, of India. Sri Chaitanya, the founder of our tradition, was, was a person who um, most in that community and in the spiritual history of the world exemplified the uh, ecstatic power that uh, lies in in kirtan and in chanting the names of god and the the, the measure of his uh, ecstasy which is recorded in numerous biographies is is very uh uh extraordinary i mean weeping like like a fountain and bathing the people uh around him who were doing kirtan and uh um ecstasies bodily ecstasies involuntary transformation of his body that sounds shocking and undesirable almost, hmm? like his teeth coming out and coming back in and even perspiring blood and, and so forth. But there's a saying, a very nice saying in Bengali, Bhaya Prem is, means love, hmm? means love of God. Hmm? It's a wise kind of love, right? It's said that love knows no reason, but it's also wise to love. And when your love is yogic, then it's wise because it's directed, your loving propensity, towards an object that can actually reciprocate in kind. If you want to give unreservedly, you have to be able to give to something that can take unreservedly and then transform what it's taken in such a way that it can give back, like the stomach does. If we put food in the stomach, it transforms the food like no other organ or orifice can, and then, while enjoying it all, so to speak, sends it back to every part of the body and nourishes it. So, so Krishna is like that. that that's the idea, this, the center to whom, therefore he's depicted as an enjoyer with nothing to do, like none of the other gods or goddesses in the Hindu pantheon. He doesn't have any weapons. He has a flute, you know. He dances, he herds cows and... and uh, and so forth. He, he he only plays. The implication of that also is that uh, that, uh, that that picture is that in order to play, you have to have some power. So, for example, if you want to take a vacation and play, you have to have some time off. You have to earn some time off. You have to have some money in the bank, some power to play. So he who is only playing is all powerful. Is the idea. And the power, so to speak, that is the power of the Krishna feature of the Absolute, of which there are different features. The Buddha is like the head, Christ like the sacrificing you know, example. But the power of the Krishna uh, feature of the Absolute is like the heart, the romantic heart of the Absolute. So it's, the, it's a power of, well, love, more powerful than any weapon, right? Hmm? any physical, mental, or intellectual power. Hmm? And bhakti is a kind of yoga, then, that, 
that seeks to make union with the absolute through love rather than through physical power like uh, action or mental power, even the mental power of controlling the mind, turning it off, hmm? intellectual power, uh, like in deep study of Vedanta or something like that, some schools are preoccupied with. But uh, the, and one of the simplest ways, of course, that we express love is, well, by singing and then dancing about it. Hmm? There was... Um, Was, I'd heard about it, I didn't see it, but there was a famous actor that uh, fell in love with a, with a girl who had um, thought of him as an idol in her earlier years, and then she became an actor, became of age, and they ended up marrying, I forget his name, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise was his name, and apparently he was on a show, Oprah or something like that, and they were talking about his relationship, and he just like, jumped up on top of the chair and started dancing. So love does things like, embarrasses you, so to speak, causes you to do things like that, and not care who's who's watching, something like that. So Bhakti Yoga is, is, is an, a yoga that very much uh, um, has many examples, I and mean, those who are practitioners of it, of ecstatic um, experience. And uh, and so the saying, Prem, the goal, it says it has a certain characteristic, this Prem. The Adbut Charita of Prem. Adbut means awesome, extraordinary character, Charita of Prem, of love, of God, this wise love that's a yogic love. It's taking all of your sensual, mental, and intellectual energy that we usually go out into the world with and create a illusory identity for ourselves, turning that all inward through practices that are nothing more than what you would do if you love somebody, like singing about them, inviting them out for lunch, you know, so we, we offer our foods to the deity and so forth. Um, these kind of practical things. How do you love God? Well, how do you love anybody else? That's how we look at it. You know, you do the kind of things that, that would, 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 would please the person and you learn about the personality of the Godhead, you know, through the sacred text and the leelas of Krishna as they're described and, and so forth. So... We know he doesn't eat meat, so you know we offer vegetarian meals, for example. So at any rate, the the character of Prem is that on the outside, it can look disconcerting to the average materialist. So here's the example of Chaitanya I was speaking about. He's perspiring blood, looks pretty, un, he's crying, looks pretty, I don't know if I want to go there, it doesn't look good. Hmm? But inside that external appearance, inside that is anandamoy, is full of ananda. Hmm? Um, so love has a way of, I would say, trying to express itself and camouflaging itself at the same time by way of knowing that, well, not everybody can appreciate. So uh, we try to share our love and then we realize that oh, everybody's not on the same page with me here. You know, I keep, I keep that between me and her. Or something like that. Hmm? So there's this outreach that comes from Bhagdi, and then then there's this receding part where he, where it's very I- I- internal and uh, and so forth. So inside, full of ecstasy. Outside, um, the body may not be able to contain the ecstasy. On the pran, hmm? then um, uh, when this. There are different airs in the yoga world, subtle airs within the body. Hmm? 
And so um, when bhava, spiritual ecstasy, riding on the airs of the body, contacts the, the water element of the body, for example, then there would be tears. When it contacts the, the, the fire element, there would be, be perspiration. Um, when it contacts the, the, uh, the air itself, then there may be passing out and, and so forth. So there's a way for understanding all those ecstasies, a kind of a science of it, but at first sight it might be a little disconcerting. So to understand love, the implications, you've got to look a little deeper. Lovers may quarrel. Don't get in the middle of that, right? <laughs> it's part of love. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an aspect of it. They say that um, we cannot rest in, until we find love. We're moving for that. But when you find it, you find that you don't rest either. It has, this, it has an orbit of its own, right? And it's, it's, its orbit's like this. So in bhakti, the same idea is there. A lot of different transcendental paths, virtuous as they are and ego-effacing as they are, have as their goal peace. And it's a good goal because we're kind of at war with our, the demands of our mind hmm, and, the, and our senses. I mean, did you ever do something that, with your intelligence, you knew wasn't good for you? Sometimes I've done things like that. If not, you know, on a regular basis, we do things like that, unfortunately. So the, there's a, there's a, the demands of the senses, the demands of the mind are not always in our interest, even from our rational point of view, but to speak of from the spiritual point of view. So it's kind of a struggle when we try to maintain a false identity. Well, we have to take from the world. We can't be givers. In the psychological and biological identity that we have is a false one, and that in, in at least in as much as it's not going to last. So it's, it's not real in the Vedantic or the Yoga sense because it doesn't endure. It's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. Sometimes we think, well, our dreams weren't real. They're just, it was a short thing. So on a larger scale, our waking condition in this life is pretty small too. If you want to, how do you want to measure it against infinity? It's a pretty short time, as is everything in relation to infinity. So even our waking state and our whole human life and the identity that we have as a Costa Rican or American or whatever, Finnish, Swedish, whatever, Italian, whatever may be the case here, that's a changing thing. That's something here today and it's, it's gone tomorrow. So to spend a whole life trying to maintain it and fight for it and struggle for it and is probably not wise. We would be wiser to look within and find what I am and pursue that sense that I am rather than the idea that I am this or I am that, which all can change at any time and we're chasing after it. I am this, and if I only had that, I could be that. And then this would... And We're trying to add on and patch the thing together, and it's, it's a losing proposition. So better to use the body, use the mind, not to explore the outer world with a microscope or a telescope or whatever it may be. We've already examined the world on land, in the air, in the sea, as an animal, as a fish, as a bird. Hmm? We have a human life now. Hmm? It's different. Hmm? Hmm? There's life in all these species. That's atma, hmm? consciousness. Hmm? They used to think, 
only humans had self-awareness. Now they realize, oh, well, some vertebrates have. Now they realize invertebrates have, like insects. Hmm? Next is plants have. Hmm? They're fighting against that, but some people are bringing up the data. It's apparent. Hmm? So consciousness is everywhere. Atma is everywhere. It's in different situations because of karma. Hmm? We've been there and we've done that. We've actually examined the world from so many vantage points to we have arrived at a human form of life. And now the idea is, rather than look outside, why not look within? Because in human life, it's true that self-awareness is more prominent than it is in other forms of life. Therefore, in a human form of life, we ask why. It's a qualitative question. Why am I? We don't just ask, how can I be? pleasured? How can I be more secure? Hmm? How can I, how to eat, how to sleep, how to mate, how to protect myself? We ask, why? Why am I? Why? Even children, they ask, why? But why? Don't ask, just do. Don't ask. The father who says that should have kept asking, why? Hmm? That's the human question. Why is it a human question? Because it's a qualitative question. It's not a quantitative question. In other words, matter it's quantitative. It has depth and weight and density and the physical world. Hmm? But now the subjective component of life, where we live, right in the world of thought, feeling, emotion, hmm? that's where value lies. In fact, matter doesn't matter unless it matters to us. Hmm? Unless we feel something about it and then project on it meaning, purpose, Value. So we are a unit, the Atma, the self, is a unit of value because it's consciousness. It's not matter. And that consciousness is coming to the fore, so to speak, in human life. It's designed, the human life, for inward pursuit hmm? more than any other species of life. We can philosophize, we can question, we can, we can do things voluntarily. We're not just under the force of nature. We can say, thank you. We can say, you first. Hmm? If you have a couple of pets, let's say you have a couple of dogs, and you put a, a meal down and you call them, you know, they're just going to go and try to eat, and not, one's not going to say, you first. Okay, well, and I had more of it last night. You, you take more. Than, you know, that they're, they are more in that condition, in that particular vehicle, hmm? more oppressed, so to speak, by, by nature in terms of their atma being able to express itself. Human life is designed for the atma to start to express itself. It's, it's, it, the questions that we have, the qualitative questions, are about ourself without us realizing it. Hmm? The, the, the answers to these qualitative questions, like why, can't be answered by the physical world. Hmm? Because it's a qualitative question, the physical world is only quantitative in nature. So qualitative questions, well, that takes me to a, has to take me to another realm to get an answer to the consciousness world itself. Hmm? So to pursue that, then the idea is in the yoga schools and schools of the Eastern discipline, you have to explore the inner landscape, which is wow, quite a challenge. Something you haven't done yet. Hmm? You haven't done. Human life affords us the opportunity. Yeah, you could continue to explore the outer landscape. You could. 
You could get a plane and try to fly in the sky or get a submarine and go to the bottom of the ocean. But you already did that as a fish and a bird. And, you know, so that's the idea. So why not explore the inner landscape? That's a huge adventure, huge challenge, and it doesn't cost a penny. You just have to sit. Not so easy, but but with good advice, good sangha, it becomes possible. So, to the song, right? This is the song, and uh, we uh, it uh, lends itself just to, to kirtan and so forth. It's a song from uh, in Bengali, um, written a few hundred years ago in our tradition by a devotee named Govindadas. Govind is a name for Krishna. Hmm? And uh, it's a beautiful name. And in Bengal, uh, at the time, there were two primary uh, spiritual or religious uh, approaches. There was the worship of the goddess, hmm, Durga or Kali, for material gain. Hmm? So they would sacrifice goats and things like that and do worship of God, Bhadra Kali hmm, for material improvement. It's a whole other school. And then there were the bhaktas. They were, they were called shaktas, and then there were the bhaktas. The bhaktas were interested not in this world, but in transcendence. Hmm? Right? So a lot of religions are interested in proving this world, and that seems to be the, the whole scope, moral life. Our idea is that moral life is like a small g good, and however many small G's you put together, you're never going to have a capital G good. Hmm? So however you try to fix the world and be ethical and sound as much as we could, as much as we should try, you're never going to make a perfect capital G good. You press down here, it's going to come up over here. You press down over here, it's going to come up over there. Hmm? It, that's inevitable. And time changes, so circumstances change, so moral laws have to change to correspond. Hmm? If you lived in a forest only... And there was, and, and the whole world was forested, and you wanted to cut down three trees, you know, several trees to build a little hut. It wouldn't be immoral, but if you've got to cut down a forest in Central America or South America for some to build a, you know, some billionaire or whatever edifice in, in North America, that's immoral. So the industrial society brings change, like other things, and so moral principles remain, but moral laws or change according to the time and circumstance. So the laws change, and um, all these moral concerns are, like I say, they're small g, good. What the moral life is like, is like if you take a human, from the animal species, we transmigrate into the human species. That's the idea. So now we're in a, we just came from animality into human, humanity. The goal of humanity is to go from humanity to spirituality. Hmm? From animality to humanity to spirituality. That's the purpose. But the beginning here is, okay, I come from the animal realm, I'm in the human realm, better put me in a cage, because I could be, you know, I need to be tamed, so to speak. So I'm just giving an analogy. So the moral law is supposed to, like, tame humans, make them civilized humans, make them say please, make them say thank you, and be considerate, and, and so forth. So this moral law is all kind of a harnessing and 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 it doesn't really speak to the 
through the sense that spiritual life should be a freedom. Hmm? Or love. Where there is love, there are no laws. Where there are laws, there is no love. Hmm? So the moral life is all the laws. It's not a bad thing. Hmm? But it doesn't amount to, however many of you put together, to love. Hmm? And however well you, you execute the laws, doesn't mean you will love. Hmm? That's another thing. Hmm? That's an, so, so there's a yoga for loving. Hmm? And other spiritual traditions also for loving. Of course, most spiritual traditions, as I was saying earlier, want to bring peace and the war of the struggle for existence and have peace. Good idea. But our tradition seeks peace, and then on top of the peace, love. Love and transcendence, movement and transcendence, not just sitting, but celebrating. Hmm? That's called lila, hmm? the play of the absolute, hmm? to enter that realm. So, <laughs> so you have the, in the you had in Bengal all the time the shaktas and the bhaktas. So one group was more interested in in material improvement and uh, invoking. Uh, the, the goddess uh, for that. And in the, the, the bhaktas, they were interested in, in, in invoking and calling the goddess Radha, who controls Krishna, who is the personification of bhakti and love. She's feminine. She's got Krishna wrapped around her, her, her finger. Uh, it's a very charming idea. Uh, for loving, not just following laws and trying to improve material life, like material improvement is kind of an oxymoron. It's like, you know, it's breaking down from the start, from the inception of the universe. It's the beginning of the breaking, breaking, it's breakdown. All things are of the names and forms of the world will come and go. So look for something that doesn't go, that stays, the Atma, the Self, and its potential. So Govindadas was a devotee of the goddess from his birth and the family and so forth. But he had an aspiration, who wrote this song, that didn't coincide with what the goddess presided over, that aspect of life. So in Hinduism, you have gods and goddesses that preside over every aspect of life. Hmm? It's like saying, there's a god of rain, there's a god of sun, there's a god of air. It's like I live in a house, I have air conditioning, I have heat. I have water, I have light, I have a switch, I have a faucet, I have a button. Hmm? And I have a mailbox. And the mailbox is a bill for the water, for the heat, for the light. Hmm? So I have to recognize that the heat and the light and the water, or in a macrocosmic sense, the rain, the sun, the air, I'm dependent on these things before I live with gratitude. Hmm? So there's the worship of the sun, the air, where we breathe, right? The water. So there's a goddess, poetically speaking, there's a goddess of water. There's a god of the sun, and so forth. It's very beautiful. Living with gratitude. And it's said also that if you love someone, they will tell you all the secrets. So if you approach nature with gratitude, rather than trying to dissect her and tear her apart, you might find out something that you couldn't find with a microscope or a telescope. You might find yourself, the soul of nature. Hmm? Very exciting ideas. 
And then there's a prospect for getting out of the cage, so to speak, as I spoke of earlier, the moral cage, and being free to love and transcendence. So Govindadas, he had an ambition like that, but he was in a different tradition. So he prayed to the goddess for something that wasn't in her jurisdiction. Hmm. So she appeared to him. His prayers and interest was, was so fervent that she appeared to him and said, you should approach Govinda, another name for Krishna. Hmm? For what you want, you should go there. Hmm? And gave him the name, you should be called Govinda Das. Das means like, like a servant. Hmm? You should be a servant of Krishna, not me, because what you want, hmm, he can give you, I cannot. So he continued to worship the goddess, who became like a guru to him, and gave him, directed him to something that her own worshippers aren't interested in, to her own lament. She kind of thinks, I wish they were interested in something more important, but, okay, this is my jurisdiction, I take care of him, like this. But he was a rare soul. So it's an interesting concept from another point of view, because you could pray to the wrong person for the right thing, or to the right person for the wrong thing. Hmm? You might be better off praying to the wrong person for the right thing than the right person for the wrong thing. They could redirect you, and you could get what's not worth having, or you could be redirected and get what is worth having. So this is the genesis of the song. After that, she, she, that mystic appearance of the goddess who gave him the direction, you should worship Krishna, you should be known as Das. he wrote this song. So he says, Bajuhure mana, Shri Nanda Nandana, Abhai Charanaravindure. He says, Oh, my dear mind. Vajuhure Mana means mind. Nanda Nandana is a name for Krishna. Nanda means bliss. The verbal root of the Sanskrit word Nand is bliss. So Nanda, Krishna is said to be the son of Nanda, hmm? the son of bliss. Nanda Nandana means he who gives pleasure to bliss. That's how blissful Krishna is. <laughs> who gives pleasure to bliss. So he invokes this particular name of Krishna. He wants Ananda. Ananda is a, is a, is a, is something we have a prospect for. We are sat. You might have heard the term. It means we exist. We're real. We're not like things of this world that are here today and gone tomorrow. We exist. Sat. We're cognizant. That means we can be aware that we exist. And we can all, and our purpose for existing is loving, is ananda. We're pleasure seekers. Hmm? Love, so we, being, knowing, and loving. We're a unit of being, a unit of knowing, and a unit of loving, hmm? essentially, right? So he's interested in, in the loving feature. You could be and not know. Something could exist but not be cognizant. But if you are cognizant, you have to exist. You couldn't be cognizant and not exist. Something could exist but not be cognizant. Now, if you're cognizant and you exist, you could be you could have a cognizant existence that wasn't a loving existence. But you cannot have a loving and not be cognizant and not exist. So the loving feature is the full face of our potential and the full face of the absolute. Also, hmm? Hmm. 
in loving even, being and knowing become minimized. In love you could live in a cave with her or him. Hmm? Right? You could live in the hollow of a tree. Hmm? And you wouldn't need to know anything else that's going on in the world. Hmm? So love, love, love diminishes, in one sense, being and knowing. And at the same time, being and the loving being and the loving knowing is the most rich being, the most rich knowing. Hmm? So this is what Krishna is about. Hmm? Right? And the leela, the play of Krishna. So he's a pro, a, a, appealing to that feature of transcendence, that feature of the Absolute, which, which will connect with the Ananda feature of the Atma, of his own self, and let it realize its full potential. If our pursuit only is peace, we may not realize the full, our full potential for Ananda, for loving. Some traditions seek, for example, eternal peace and loving to exist. If you could have an existence that was not threatened ever by non-existence, like ours is now, hmm? oh, that'd be that'd be peaceful. You wouldn't have to you wouldn't have to defend yourself or worry about anything, right? So that would be an existence you might might I might love to exist if my existence wasn't pervaded by fear, anxiety, material existence, material identity is pervaded by some fear. The birds just make a move and they fly. And they're fearful. Hmm? We're also fearful or we're anxiety-ridden. Even we go to a social event, we go, how am I going to come off? What's it going to be like? <laughs> we have issues like that. So it's, a, it's kind of uncomfortable if you really look at it, our biological and psychological sense of self. We could try psychologically to adjust it and physically and make it more comfortable, but it's not a good fit for the self, ultimately, for the Atma. Hmm? So if we could just know the Atma and get out from underneath the demands of the body and the mind, oh, we could be peaceful. There would be no anxiety. We're beautiful. Hmm? So we could love to exist. So some schools seek this love to exist, and it's a good idea. But in bhakti, we have another idea. Better than to love to exist is to exist to love. Hmm? So that means the atma, the ananda feature of the atma hmm, in bhakti is what is... It, its potential is fulfilled in bhakti. The ananda feature of the atma will not be fulfilled in peace alone. It'll be blissful to exist without any fear or anxiety. Hmm? But it's another thing to love somebody. Hmm? It's kind of a, okay, I have no fear, I have no anxiety. Ha! Ah, I love it. It's great. Hmm? But that's kind of like a relief kind of a love. It's like not taking is part of giving, but it's not the whole face of giving. So if I stop taking from the karmic world, I can be peaceful because no one's going to chase me anymore. Because if I've taken, then I owe. So if I stop taking, no more karma, I don't owe anything, I can be peaceful. I could love that. That would be good. But that's not taking, as I said, is not the whole face of giving. It's an aspect of giving. Follow me? Giving is more than just not taking. It's something positive. So bhakti has like positive application in transcendence. There's movement in transcendence in bhakti. Hmm? In jnana, 
in yoga there's stillness and transcendence. And that's a good thing too. And some people may want that. But our school is about movement and transcendence, love and transcendence, dancing and transcendence. So this was Govindadasa's ideal. And the goddess said, you've got to go to Krishna. So he says, my dear mind, which is, of course, central to any yoga, right? Harnessing the mind, right? My dear mind, he says, please fix yourself on Nanda Nandan, the bliss of bliss, hmm? by which Abhai Charanadabindure. Charan means feet, Adabindu means lotus. So it's, it's a way of saying Krishna is so nice that his feet are like lotuses. And he walks barefoot. So if you walked everywhere barefoot, your feet might not be so tender. Hmm? Right? But it's saying, even his feet are like lotuses. Hmm? So soft. It means he travels on the ground without touching it, really. Gently. Hmm? Hmm? You know that how Krishna is depicted. Not with a big crown. and so He's like a, he got a peacock for a crown. He's intimately associated with his... With his devotees. He's not on a throne and they're like, like this. They're palling with him and so forth. Radha's loving him and even scolding him at times and so forth. It's a very extraordinary idea of intimacy with the Absolute. It's kind of the idea that if you want to have, if the finite, like ourselves, wants to have intimacy with the infinite, the infinite will have to take on a finite-like appearance. Otherwise, if we're sitting next to the infinite, we'd have to kind of sit back and go, oh my God, it's the infinite. So he takes on a finite-like appearance, and then there can be intimacy. And in the ultimate feature in bhakti, the in, the intimacy with Krishna is that we don't even know that he's God. Hmm? And he doesn't either. That's a far-out idea. Hmm? Lost in the love of his devotee. So he's depicted as just in a rural setting. They don't know much of it. They're just happy, happily living, happily ever after. Hmm. So... Anyway, Govinda Dasiri prays that, My dear mind, please fix yourself on Krishna, Nandanandan, at whose lotus feet, Abhai means fearless. One will become fearless. Hmm? One will become fearless. He says then, Durlabhamanava janama satsange. He says, the manava means human life. We were speaking about it a little bit earlier. He says, Mana, human life is Durlabha. It's very rare to attain a human life. That means that in this forest, there are a few of us that are humans. But there are many, many, many billions of insects and thousands of birds and hundreds of other species and plant life and what to speak of the forest. On the end of my finger, there are more microscopic germs that are living beings than I could even count. We're rare. We're a rare breed here. We should stick together <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and do something different, like I was saying earlier. Look within so that, so that we can really be stewards of the world, so that we can be, be kind to yourself and know yourself. And by knowing yourself for what you really are, then you will have compassion for every other species of life hmm? and live in the world only for their upliftment. You have no other purpose in the, in the world. Hmm? So, he says, human life is very rare. And he says, Durlabha manava janama. Birth janama, birth in human life is very rare. And then he says another thing. 
rarer still is that in human life we have satsanga. Hmm? That is most rare. To get human life is rare, but a lot of people are wasting their human life. Aren't they? Lots of them. Majority of them. Chasing after so many things, fighting over whatever, uh, you know, and, and then thinking they're going to sort it out with politics or this or that. The other, you know, this, it's endless, right? So, <laughs> so human life is rare enough, and sadhu sangha is even rarer. And he says, with the two of these together, human life and sadhu sangha, then, uh, in there, then there's possibility of crossing over the Bhava Sindhu, the ocean of material existence, which is always going up and down, up and bobbing like an ocean. There's a chance not only to ply safely across, but to land on the shore. There. And then he goes on. I don't think we'll have time to explain the whole prayer, but this is the, the gist of it. Want me to go on? He explains a little bit more just about the nature of, of of his now perspective on the world. He says that both day and night, I have, he's speaking about life in, in general, I was sleepless, suffering the pains of heat and cold, wind and rain. He's just talking about the dualities of material existence. I lived in the world and in the dualities of of. Rising from the senses in the mind, I endured hot and cold and good and bad. And with my senses, I thought it was good. And my neighbor thought it was bad. I thought it was hot. My wife thought it was cold. We were at odds with one another, and such is the nature of, of the world. These dualities of, that arise in, in the mind. Our perception of the world through the senses in the mind don't give us a clear picture of what it's like. You think it's hot, I think it's cold. You think it's uh, bad, I think it's good. Which is it? Both of these perceptions are just perceptions from instruments, the senses, and a rational faculty that cannot arrive at the full picture. Hmm? We need a transrational method to rise above these limited f- instruments to know in a way that you can't know with your mind, that you can't know with your senses. A kind of knowing by which you know there's nothing more to be known. I know now, and I'm at peace with it. We don't know. Therefore, we're not at peace. We're just trying to work it out, you know, so forth. Mostly by trying to acquire things, unfortunately. Hmm? So he says, I, I lived, I, I suffered heat, cold, day, and I, I, through these dualities, I, I lived in the duality of material existence. For a f- And all I got out of it was a fraction, he says. Hmm? I got a fraction of flicker, flickering happiness, having uselessly served... Wicked, wicked and wiserly men, which includes my own concept of myself as a man. Hmm? I served the concept of myself as a man, and I got, what did I get for it? Hmm? In other words, I just served this projection. Hmm? I'm not a man, I'm an atma, actually. Hmm? I served the demands of my mind and my senses, and they never were satisfied. My mind was never satisfied. It kept me driving me for something more. My senses were never satisfied, or my one sense was satisfied, like my tongue was satisfied, my belly was satisfied, but my tongue said, eat more. And then I got indigestion. Hmm? So these senses are pulling me in different directions at the same time, and I'm obediently serving their demands, and 
what do I get from it? Nothing. Hmm? They're wicked masters, he says. They're not fulfilling me. Hmm? I'm, I think I'm free, but I'm not free, actually. I'm, I'm just under the dictates, the oppression of my mind and my senses, dragging me here or there to do this and, and to do embarrassing things, even. Embarrass myself. Look at me. I'm a fool. They've made a fool out of me. And they never, they're never satisfied. I'm done, he said. I'm done serving them. Hmm? I'm turning inward now. This is what he's saying. He goes on, he says, It's the heart, it's the desire and great long... Oh, he, says, uh, he says, What assurance of real happiness is there in all of one's wealth, youth, sons, daughters, family, which we think we'll find happiness in? Hmm? He said, what, what, what kind of wealth, a real assurance of happiness will we find there? He says, Chapalasukula balagi re. He says, Kamala dala dala. Um, he says, Kamala dala dala jivana talamala. Bajahure. Bajahari paranitures. Kamala dala dala. He says, The happiness derived from these things is like a drop of water on the leaf of a lotus, which, if you watch it long enough, it'll roll off. Hmm? Lotus grows in the water, right? Sits above the water. So a drop of water may fall on the lotus. And you watch, and it inevitably will roll off. So the happiness derived from these things, the outer world, he says, it's like this. Chapalasukha. You can't, can't, flickering. You can't, you can't count on it. Kamala hmm? uh, dala He says, then, it's the heart desire and great longing of Govindadas, he's speaking about himself, hmm? therefore, to engage himself in the processes of bhakti, hearing about Krishna, shravana, kirtanam, he says, shravana, kirtana, chanting about Krishna, which will cause smaranam, means inner meditation about Krishna. Hear and chant, and in due course, you will find meditation comes automatically, even while walking, even without sitting, and trying to meditate. The power of kirtan can, you can, in the context of the kirtan, you can go into meditative trance and you can continue the trance and walking and interacting and so forth. Hmm? So kirtan is very powerful and it, it gives rise naturally to meditation, which people often sit and try to do hmm, with some success. But kirtan, kirtana prabhavi smarana svabhavi, this is the saying, by the power, the force of kirtan, a meditative mind will arrive naturally. Hmm? So he says, let me engage in hearing about Krishna. Kirtan, that will give rise to meditation about Krishna. And other angas or limbs of Krishna, like puja, like we worship the deity of Krishna, and, and so forth. And other ways that angas of bhakti are such that they are many. They include all of our physical, mental, uh, um, activities so that all of our mental, physical activities can be engaged in in such a way that they become yoga. Hmm? Instead of stopping the senses, fasting, for example, we offer the food to Krishna and we eat that, and it's pretty good. Hmm? So it's easier than fasting, hmm? and it has the power to control the control the tongue more than than fasting. Hmm? In fasting. Or, in fa or, or, yeah, same thing. 
Anyway, so this is the gist of the prayer. Govindas ki jai. It's a very nice song. Any question tonight? Yes. It's all right. We have time. We have time. Think about it. Anyone else? That's an Anga of Bhakti. He's mentioning the nine Angas of Bhakti given by Prahlad in the Bhag, in the book the Bhagavatam. Shravanam Kirtanam Vishnu Smaranam Parasevanam Archanam Bandanam Dasyam Sakyam Atmani Vedanam. So he's mentioning all those. They're, some of them are easy to perform and some of them take some qualification. So Sakyam means to like think of Krishna as a friend. Hmm? rather than as worshipable deity, so to speak. It requires some some uh, advancement in spiritual life to, to feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big subject. won't go into it in, in, in depth tonight, maybe another night. What else? From previous lives, from some scars, impressions from previous lives, he was disposed in that way. He was born in a Shakta family for different karmic reasons, but he also had spiritual uh, impressions from the previous life. So those impressions were coming to the surface. Uh, if we are not successful in our spiritual practice, the Gita says that. Uh, uh, We'll take birth in a family of transcendentalists or a family that's, that gives us facility to pursue, pick up where we left off. Typically what will happen is is you take birth in a situation that will ultimately facilitate your pursuing spiritual life, which might mean leaving home, which not everybody can do for one reason or another. Um, and the... Uh, there's a certain kind of karma that would ordinarily get in the way of your practice that has not yet been ex- expired, so that will come first. Mm-hmm. So you'll find at a certain time, like it might be young or it might be as a teenager, someone decides suddenly, like, I'm interested in yoga and spiritual life. And it, When I was uh, in sixth grade, I became interested in yoga. That would have been 1955. Hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't know where the idea came from. You know, I may do know now, but I mean, I didn't know then. My parents didn't know the difference, and neither did anybody else in the United States at that time between yoga and yogurt. To be honest with you, practically, practically speaking. <laughs> So, so I started asking about yoga. Yoga. <laughs> uh, it took me a little more time, you know, to to actually uh, pursue it in, in earnest. But um, but it was the early my early beginning there. But it, it by the, I got 
obviously caught up in in the counterculture, which was a was a you know, had a spiritual overtones and promises and so forth. And, and in the context of that, of course, I found my guru. And but um, but at any rate, uh, you you can often find this in persons who have spiritual background from the previous life. Certain karma will expire first. That needs to expire, and then that'll come to the surface, that spiritual interest, and then they'll kind of take off, like hit the ground running in terms of spiritual pursuit. So, Gubindas, something like that. Yes? Does that possibly happen in layers, where then there's more karma that comes up and then another spirit? It can. Yeah, it can, definitely, yes. 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 Good question. There's a lot of layers to the karma. <laughs> and it depends, too, if, whether we're doing something to do away with karma or whether perpetuating karma. We may be living in such a way as only to perpetuate karma. Mm-hmm. We may be, and then there are... I mean, to actually... There's two ways to end karma. One is to let it expire. But if in the context of karma that's usually what happens is karma that is in the context of inspiring we react to and then we perpetuate so it's just it goes on and on so just stop reacting to the karma and so let it expire and then to be engaged in sadhana actual spiritual practice that, that, that has the power to do away with karma that hasn't even yet fructified. Before it even fructifies, it's waiting to fructify for a certain... Karma has to wait for certain circumstances, so it doesn't all come when you're a child. Hmm? Right? So you had a karma to fall in love with so-and-so, but you know it couldn't happen when you were a child. You needed another body of an adolescent, and it comes. Hmm? Right? That's why adolescence can be such a change for some for persons, even materially speaking, also. <laughs> so, but it's possible by spiritual practice to do to to ward off and expire karma that's waiting to fructify before it ever fructifies. Just like preventative medicine or something like that. There might be a flu in the air, and you could know about it and take preventative medicine, or or just know that such things exist, and so I take medicines to increase my immune system, and then they don't catch me, something like that. And then there's karma that's already fructified, and it's hard to deal with that because it's like dealing with the cold. You kind of kind of have to wait it out. It's already fructified. But there are ways to deal even with karma that's now fructified. Bhakti is very powerful in that, that regard. But yes, it's layered, the karma. What else? We are. Impressions. Yeah. 
Well, you can just certainly, certainly we, it depends how affected we will be by the company or how we may affect the company. So it depends from a spiritual point of view, yourself as a sadhaka, whether you, whether you have the power to affect the association that you have or whether you'll be affected by the association that you have, which will have the greater balance. So early in our spiritual practice, it's probably likely that we'll be more affected by association that's not conducive to spiritual practice if we're in it, then we have the power to influence by our association that environment. Let's say, for example, let's say you live in an ashram, okay, for six months. Things are going well and you go home for Christmas or something like that, you know. You got a certain standard that you practice and diet and you are strict and you are following nicely. And you went home and they said, why don't you eat this or why are you doing that, you know, and so the environments they're nice people they're your family but they're like they don't understand you hmm? and they they think you should be like you used to be hmm? and so they their association is influential and you may slip from your practice by the force of their association and do things that you already thought were not in your interest and decided not to do and then with some healthy remorse you know the christmas is over you come back to the ashram and you make up for lost lost time <laughs> Something like that. Now, let's say you've been in the ashram for quite some time and you become strong in your practice. Hmm? And then you go and you go visit, you know, for whatever reason. Then you may have not only the power to not be affected by um, winds of other ideas and habits and so forth. You may be able to infect the association that you're having and, and put, give them an impression. Hmm? Like say, okay, when I was a kid, you know, whatever it was, I was 20 years old. I wrote my parents a letter from California that I was joining an ashram, and I thought it made perfect sense the way I wrote the letter and stuff, you know. And I don't know if I'll ever see you again or something like that, you know. You know, I probably didn't explain myself very well because I didn't understand entirely what I was doing, although it was a good thing to do. I mean, you understand it to some extent, but I understand a lot more now than I did then. Hmm? So... Um, After many years, I could associate with my parents in such a way that I could make a more rational and compelling explanation of what I was doing that they themselves would think, well, that's pretty interesting. I didn't tell that. That's what you were doing, you know. Earlier, I couldn't do that. So I, now, I, then later, I could have a you know, more powerful influence. So it's just, it's just a practical thing, the extent to which you're going to be influenced but or you're going to influence. But that's just basically the way life works. If you associate with a certain, with, with people who are, Alcoholics, you know, you're, you're probably going to become a drinker unless you're powerful enough to be the Alcoholics Anonymous, anonymous you know, guide <laughs> that alcoholics all come to once a week and you know talk about their their, their addiction and you help them with it, you know. So who, who we associate with was, is, is what we're going to become like. That's why sadhu sangha means association, not only with saintly people but with the very ideas that that they entertain hmm, that are saintly. Sadhu means like saintly. Hmm? Um, that's very powerful. We'll become like that. If we associate with sadhus, we'll become like that. that I mean, it's very powerful. It's more powerful than, than the individual practice that we can do almost ourselves. And, and after a while, but from the power of the, sang, the, the sangha, 
we can actually practice in a deep way ourselves and get experience. Like, let's say, for example, we hold a festival. We have kirtan and discussions like this for a few days and feasts and, and we're living out here in this environment and it's very, very powerful. Culturally powerful, there's incense, there's music, there's the, there's the, there's the, the jungle and uh, uh, the, the, everything about it, right? The lectures and discussion and the other people that you talk to, sharing your experience and you experience some real, really bliss. You actually feel something that, that transcends any kind of pleasure that you could have ever had. You can't even put it in words. Hmm? Makes you want to weep with with joy. Hmm? Feels like a wave just came over you, and like it's not like winning the World Series or anything like that, or you know, which is like, what do we do now? We won. What do we do now? <laughs> you know, next day, what do we do now? Let's watch it. We won. We celebrate. There we are celebrating. Yeah, it was great. You know, well, you know, it's gone, right? Not like that, but something that's just like so, like life changing, just for you know. A moment, a day, maybe an hour or something, but it's so powerful. And then you want to go back, of course, and take what you learned and try to put it in practice, but you, you can't get that same experience as easily or as, as readily. Hmm? But in a Sangha, that kind of a festival, you could get some bliss, some bhav, some shadow of a bhav, some semblance of a bhav, of ecstasy. Oh, it's, it's very powerful, life changing. Hmm? But in time, through sadhusanga, then in your own practice, when your practice becomes more informed, it's more you more understand what's involved, what you're doing, what what your what the conditions are that you're working on to change and so forth, then your practice is going to become capable of producing, if you will, that experience or the ananda of the self is going to come out more readily, and then you're going to be in a good position to influence others, to open a studio yourself, you know, whatever. It's very practical. Yes. Where you are geographically, there might not be a sangha. What do you suggest to individuals then? Who craves the community and that? There's a couple of things that you can do. You could move. So if you want something bad enough, then you do what's necessary, right? People are moving for every other kind of reason, right? That's one thing. The other thing is, you can invite sadhus to where you live. Hmm? That's also possible. Hmm? You could say, I know a sadhu, and, and, and I met. So you can. Usually, they travel. Hmm? They may even go. They may be even in an area that, let's say, you live in Chicago, and there's no sadhu. They may be. You don't know where they are. You know, or San Francisco, or whatever is the case. So, and the other thing that you can do is that you can go and visit sadhus. So you could, you could say, move. Well, I can't move. I've got a job. I just got this job. I w worked hard to get the job, and now I've got a mortgage, too. And so now I'm finding all these things. I love them, but, I mean, here I am, you know. So nice idea, Swami, but I, I can't sell my house right now and just, you know, move to the jungle in Costa Rica or whatever, you know. So, okay, then you got a job, right? you got to work, right? Do you get vacations? Yeah, I get vacations. Then come for vacation. Use your vacation like this hmm? to come for sadhusanga. Hmm? Spend your vacation at a monastery, at an ashram. Hmm? So, as you know, there's a start like this. It's not just, there's no association here, there's no sangha. Hmm? There's things you can work with. And now also there's, there's also, you know, there's, 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 you know, a good portion of the world lives in the digital realm. So there's possibility people try to create 
some semblance of sadhu sangha through, you know, digitally speaking, you know, classes, uh, like my classes are often broadcast on, you know, somewhere they broadcast them and people tune in and watch it and so forth, ask questions and so on. Um, so there are some workarounds. Where do you live? Oh, towards the town in North Ontario. I know the song. North Ontario. Helpless, helpless. Something like that. <laughs> so, okay. Nice nice place, Canada. Very beautiful. What? What's your name? Lana. Lana. Very nice to meet you. And Luis? From where? From here. Buenas noches. Pero habla inglés bien, ¿no? Habla inglés bien. Sí, entiendo perfecto. Pero más de menos, sí, entiendes. Yes. By them, yes. perhaps, yeah. So it becomes our dharma to be in the in the world. Let's call it that. Yeah, there was a world, not in this beautiful place, in the Satanga. But to come here, Richard, and go back to to hell. So your question is, if I understand it, is it our dharma once we know? To share it, hmm? or just to live in ashram, hmm? right? Well, um, there's a couple things to say about that. One thing is that it's a, it's a little bit of a misunderstanding to think that just living in the ashram is not doing anything for people in the world. One of the things that living in the ashram is doing is creating a situation in the world, an oasis, so to speak, in the desert of materialism that people can come to. And so it's important to have oasises. Now, besides that, people have different natures and dispositions. So some people are psychologically more disposed to live more like a monastic. Other people are more psychologically supposed to have a partner, a family, and so forth. So they're different natures, right? Mm -hmm. And bhakti is such that we kind of go with our nature. So if someone has a monastic kind of tendency, then we have ashrams for them to live in. If they have the more of a what we call like a householder disposition, they feel comfortable having a significant other, a partner. Maybe they want a, a family, or whatever, um, a lifestyle that's you know separate from the ashram, but is still spiritual. Then they can do that. Bhakti has that power, and then um, then obviously, in that context, they can share the the, the dharma. Um, but also from here, like for me, I'm so I'm a, I live here, you know. I have a couple ashrams. I move between them, but I'm also an author, so like I write. I've got many books, so my books go everywhere. Hmm? 
And then some people who live in the world, who are our members, for example, they help. They would live there. They make money to live, so that they all send some here. They support the ashram, help to publish the books. So we, we the two sides, they kind of work together. Both are there. So that's a decision that individuals have to make. And um, they could spend time in an ashram and see if that lifestyle works for them. And if not, then they can live outside the ashram, and they can and then. The practice can be adjusted to, to fit, to tailor, to be tailor fit for that situation. But both both sides are sharing, absorbing, and sharing, in different ways. I would say. So, yes, I think that it's very natural that um, if you become full, you overflow. Intendus. Hmm? Hmm? So naturally, I will be sharing. That's our. Part of our Dharma. We say this. The, the essence of Dharma is twofold. Jive doi Krishna nam sarva dharma sar. Jive doi means jive doi Krishna nam. There are two central focuses of, of what essence is sarva dharma sar. The essence of all Dharma. Sar means essence. Sarva means all. Dharma. The essence of all Dharma is these two things. To do kirtan, the names of Krishna. Okay? Secondly, to show kindness to other living beings. Hmm? Which is what you were talking about. And the greatest kindness you can do for other living beings is to share these ideas with them by your words and more by your own example. Hmm? Okay. Thank you all for your questions. Harikirtan ki jai. God Premanande, Hari Om. Yeah.